everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk. Thank you so much. It's such a blessing to be part of our church. God loves the local church, and he blesses the local church, and uh, he definitely has blessed us uh, over the years. And as we joined just only three years ago, um, we have seen that we joined a blessed group of people, and we love being here. Um, So we are continuing our journey through the book of Philippians, and uh, we are now in um, uh, chapter 2. And I would like to do a little bit of, uh, of a review of the background of what we call the book of Philippians. Uh, although Philippians is not really a book, it's a letter with a proper sender and a proper recipient and a clear subject um, and an obvious relationship between the writer and the, um, the readers. So the center of this letter is Apostle Paul, as we saw last week, who started the church in Philippi on his second missionary journey. And we saw that this was the first church that he planted on the European continent. Paul initially wanted to go to Bithynia, which is modern-day Turkey, but uh, the Bible says that the Spirit of Jesus stopped him and led him instead to Macedonia, to the town of Philippi. And we saw that Philippi was a Roman colony at that time after Mark Anthony and Octavian defeated the armies of Brutus and Cassius, the assassins of Julius Caesar in uh, 42 BC, and that decisive battle took place on this territory of Philippi. And to celebrate that victory, the Philippians were offered overnight Roman citizenship with all its privileges and all its rights. Now, this is important because later in next chapter, in chapter 3, Paul talks about citizenship and the importance uh, of citizenship and how, how, how our citizenship in heaven cannot compare with the Roman, the coveted Roman citizenship that they had. So that's an important concept uh, pointing to that uh, fact. So Paul and Silas planted this uh, church in Philippi, and by the time uh, they left Philippi at the request of the city magistrates, if you remember in the book of Acts, they left behind a very diverse group of people. And this is who we think that they probably left behind. They left behind a uh, businesswoman named Lydia and her family that Paul um, baptized. Two women that are mentioned in uh, next chapter, Euidia and Syntyche. A jailer and his household Uh, that converted to the Christian faith when uh, Paul and Silas were in prison there in Philippi, and possibly a slave girl who was a fortune teller. And Paul delivered her of that spirit, and very likely she joined this, this church in Philippi. So by the time Paul and Silas left Philippi, a church was formed. And we know from Acts 16 that this church met in Lydia's house. 
But what's interesting about this new church is that this was not a homogenous church, meaning that uh, everyone in the church came from different backgrounds, different social standings. They, they were from uh, of different ages. They had a different level of understanding about God. So somehow, as God does, he put all of them together. And because there was the only church in town, they had to work out their own problems there. And uh, some years later, Paul writes to this church that he planted in Philippi. And if you'd like to stand with me, and let's read what Paul is saying to this church in Philippi, to this group of believers, and we will read from the message Bible. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor, agree with each other, love each other, be deep-spirited friends, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. You may be seated. When God created us in his image, he created us as relational beings, as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, are in an interpersonal relationship from eternity. God created us to be in, a, in relationships that are interdependent, to live in families and to live in communities. And in these communities, it's where we best fulfill our potential. In these communities, it's where we, we flourish. That's why the most difficult punishment in many prisons today is solitary confinement. Why? Because in, in these confinements, prisoners are placed in this prolonged isolation with no contact with other human beings and the usual signs of life. And after months of complete isolation, these prisoners lose their minds because they can't be alone. They can't be in this utter severance from, from other human beings. God created us as social beings and isn't it true that some of the most joyous experiences that we had in life were not when we were alone, but when we shared with other people good times 
vacations, uh, reunions, graduations, weddings. And the opposite is also true. The most painful experiences in our lives were those times when close relationships were broken, maybe through divorce, maybe through separation, through death, through disagreements, through um, arguments. When our relationships are loving, the burdens that we carry are lighter. The ability to handle stress is greater, and life in general is more enjoyable. And when these relationships lost their harmony, life together can be, can be burdensome and even miserable. So Paul writes to this church in Philippi, a church that stood together as a tiny island of commitment to the gospel in the midst of, of a raging sea of Greek philosophies and, and paganisms. And, and they suffered with Paul for the gospel, and they stood strong against outside pressures. But now Paul sees something that is beginning to happen among them. So he writes to them and he says, I'm asking you, do not succumb to the destructive forces of disunity. You are strong against the outside pressures. Don't allow now internal disagreements and problems to divide you. Remember, our common goal is to advance the gospel. So he says, I want you to be so close that you are in full accord and of one mind with one another. Now, when we read these words, this is a very interesting exhortation. And we wonder, what does Paul mean by being of one accord and being of one mind as a church? Is he asking people in the church to become identical in the way they think, in the way they dress, in the way they, they speak, to deny all their differences in the church? What does it mean to be of one mind? When we look around us, we see that God created us so differently, with different eye color and a different skin color and, and different gender and in height we're different and food preferences and in, even like our biorhythm uh, is different. Some function better at night, some function better in the morning. We're all so different. And one of God's exceptional traits is that he likes originals. For God to make another Debbie or John or, or, or Janet would be a failure, would be a mistake. God does not make mistakes. God likes variety and he likes diversity. In fact, there are so many differences between men and women. The psychologists have said that we act as and think as if we are from different planets. And those of us who are married... We have experience with that, don't we? We also see the difference in our children, children that come from the same parents, that drank the same mother's milk, so to speak. They are so, so different. And these differences are also found in the church. We look differently. Some of us like to dress up for church. Some of us like to be more casual. Some like services that are more liturgical. Some like a practical uh, sermons uh, and preaching. Some prefer more traditional singing. Others more modern and upbeat music. We are different. And despite our differences, 
we are called to live in harmony. And this is what Paul tells the Philippian church. In your diversity, as God created you, I want you to practice unity. I don't want you to be uniform. All of you to sing the same tune. But I want you to be of one mind and one accord in this one purpose. And that is to advance the gospel. Any relationship that insists upon uniformity is dysfunctional. And it is manipulative. And I remember growing up um, in my country, everyone had to agree with the wishes of our dictator, of president and his wife. They set the tone and everyone had to sing in unison the same tune. And if anyone challenged that tune, or maybe they, they offered a different idea, or maybe they offered a different opinion, it was on their own head. No one disagreed with the president. That is a dictatorial relationship. And sadly, there are families where children or, or maybe one of the spouses, they are afraid to speak up. They are afraid to offer a different opinion because of consequences. And there are churches where people, uh, where people's personalities and uniqueness and gifts are diminished and, and dismissed because they don't fit a certain mold. The challenge that Paul gives us here is not for everyone to be exactly the same, like in a totalitarian regime or like in the army, to sing in unison, but to sing in harmony. Not to insist on always having their own way, but to allow for others to also be right. Paul says that is unity. Now, I make a parenthesis here um, to say that we're not referring to being different by deviating from orthodox theology. But living in unity, despite our personalities, despite our gifts and our culture and our background and our ethnicity. So, how do we live in unity in the midst of our diversity? Why is it so difficult to live in harmony with people around us? And Paul says that one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons unity and harmony are difficult in the church is because of pride. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And this is important for us to hear because we're fallen human beings and we live in a fallen, fallen world. And our hearts and our attitudes, more often than not, are curved inwards, like, like Martin Luther said. And we want to serve and we honor, we want to honor ourselves first. Pride is one of the most devastating attitudes of the heart. And if we want to live in harmony, 
with one another. This is a sin that we want to be aware of and be forgiven of in the church. Remember the Pharisee who sat on the front row of the temple in the temple? not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give to the poor. I give my tithe. I, I go to church. Because of his pride, that Pharisee was closer to the gates of hell than Mary Magdalene, a woman who was thrown around for man's pleasure, living in the sins of the flesh, but who knew that her only hope was not her own righteousness but the forgiveness that came from Jesus Christ through repentance and through humility. No other sin is more devastating than the sin of pride. No other sin caused more wars between nations, destroyed more families and communities, brought more misery between friends, hindered, please hear me, hindered, more revivals in the church and send more people to hell than the sin of pride. Vanity, vanity, definitely my favorite sin. You remember that movie in The Devil's Advocate? Al Pacino says that he played the role of Satan in that movie. Vanity. Satan's favorite sin to entice us, especially in the church. The sin of pride, the eyes full of haughtiness that God hates, the writer of Proverbs says. And this is an attitude that I would like us to become maybe more aware of inside us and maybe be healed of this morning. And I know that, that we have needs for healing in the church and there are other needs in, in the church but I would like us not to ignore this hidden sin of the heart because God looks at the heart he looks at the motives and he looks at our attitude and he wants to heal us in that area as well as well as heal us in our body so here is a question that I ask myself and we all need to ask ourselves when was the last time we detect, detected the sin of pride in ourselves? When was the last time we allowed others to also be right in church, in our home, at work? When was the last time we acknowledged that God could work through other people who are not like us? And if it has been a long time, maybe there is some pride there in our hearts that we need to repent of. The sin of pride is the first sin in the Bible. It is the most resistant to change. And it is the most devastating sin because it is the most deceptive. It disguises itself in the most noble and religious garments. And most of us are clueless how it manifests in our lives and how we can detect it in ourselves. You know, someone said that pride is like the AIDS virus. The human body 
has the ability to fight against infections because our immune system is incredibly intelligent and sophisticated. So we have these, these T lymphocytes or T cells in our bodies that patrol back and forth at the cellular level to identify any pr foreign presence in our body. And the moment a virus or maybe a foreign a protein invades the body, these T cells immediately detect it and scan it and memorize their code. And then they begin to secrete and create antibodies that are specific for that particular invader. And they isolate it and they neutralize it and they destroy it. And these lymphocytes are like the CIA of the body, always, always on the lookout for any foreign attempt or invasion of the body and are ready to attack that invader and destroy it. But the evil genius of the AIDS virus is that when it enters the body, it does not attack a certain organ like the muscles or the liver or the skin, but it attacks and grows and makes its home in the very center of these T cells, those patrollers of the body. And from the inside, they change the program of the lymphocytes and they are no longer able to recognize anything that's foreign in the body. And the person then is invaded by all sorts of bacteria and cancers and foreign proteins. And the same way is with the sin of pride. This attitude of pride inoculates the center of our self. And from there, it changes our actions and in our attitudes, so much so that we can recognize pride in others. We, we can even actually recognize uh, other sins in ourselves, but we cannot recognize our own pride. And as a result, we cannot fight against it. That's why pride is so dangerous, because it's deceptive. If I ask you if you ever lied, or if you ever lusted or gossiped or coveted something that was not yours, you may say, yeah, probably more than once. But if I ask you, have you ever struggled with pride? Most of us will probably say, not me, but I know a few people who are definitely proud. We have a hard time detecting pride in ourselves. So let's um, look very quickly at... Uh, what pride is and what pride is not. Because not every confident expression of uh, our personality is pride. Having self-appreciation, having self-esteem is not pride. We all need to appreciate the gifts that God put in us and the qualities that we have. Many people have been raised in families where their self-esteem was constantly crushed through name-calling, uh, hurtful words that were spoken to them. And these people lived their lives with, with major inferiority complexes. They no longer, they don't appreciate uh, their own individuality. And they don't have confidence to cope with life's difficulties because their confidence has been stifled. If you remember that story uh, many, many years ago, college student who uh, revolted uh, at the prejudice and the mistreatment he encountered because of his skin difference, and wrote on a big poster in his dorm the following statement, I'm me, I'm good, because God don't make no junk. 
questionable grammar, but excellent theology. Excellent theology. The value that we have as human beings is not the result of our IQ or our looks or our, the school that we went to or what we have, but our value comes from the truth that we were created by God in the image of God. And when God put his fingerprint on each one of us, he put value that is inestimable in each one of us. And that's why we can say without a grain of pride, we are princes of heaven. We're sons and daughters of God, and we can speak confidently and hold our head high because we are bearers of God's image. And we need to respect ourselves for that and respect each other for that. Confidence and self-esteem are not pride. To dress well does not mean that you are full of pride, just like to deliberately dress in old rags does not mean you're humble. So uh, if all of these are not pride, then what is pride? What is that pride that God hates and condemns? Pride is an attitude of autonomy, a declaration of independence from God. When we insist that we can live in God's universe, that we can use God's resources, we can use God's intelligence to do our job and God's blueprints to create art and to heal and to do business and to advance in science and in other areas without thanking Him, without bowing our knee to Him and giving an account to Him for our lives. That to think that we are the captain of our own lives and soul and expect even God to bow down to our brilliance. Pride is an attitude of independence from God and God's will. But pride can also be when we compare ourselves with each other and see ourselves above others. We have a, a, a story that I learned growing up. It's a parody of this hen and this rooster in this yard. And, and this hen and this rooster, they, they hopped on a rock and then they hopped on a broken pot and somehow they found their way on this fence. And then from that fence, they look at all the other hands beneath them and they say to each other, aren't we great? Look at us here above everyone else. And it, it rhymes. And sometimes we are the same way. God blessed us and we achieve something in life. And from there we look down and we compare ourselves with others and we beat our chests and we say, aren't we great? Look at me. I'm the monkey on top of this hill. We have pride in our hearts when we compare ourselves with others to show off. Pride is also found in this attitude that I should be the center of the universe. And everyone should admire me. Like Louis XIV, who, if he was at a play, he wanted to be the main character. If he was at a wedding, he wanted to be the groom, or maybe the bride. If he was at a funeral, I don't know what he wanted to be. <laughs> You figure it out. 
always the center of the universe. Or like, um, like Eric Erickson, this brilliant developmental psychologist, when somebody asked him, why don't you get your PhD in psychology? You know what he responded? He said, and who's going to examine me? I am the best. No one is smarter than me. Pride is having this inflated sense of self. I am better than everyone else. Pride is also not acknowledging our mistakes, never saying, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. How many marriages and how many relationships could have been saved just by saying these words? And along the same lines, pride is blaming others for mistakes, uh, for everything that's going wrong, never taking responsibility. Pride is also never asking for advice. I know best. I won't admit that I need help even if I don't know what I'm doing. Pride is never asking for advice. Pride is also measuring our success based on the number of people that we defeated. Pride is not a desire to have more. Pride is a desire to have more than him or more than her, more than others is what Paul calls in our text, selfish ambition. Not ambition, selfish ambition. I need to win every game. I need to win every argument because I need to prove that I'm better than everyone else. And God is nauseated by pride. The Bible tells us not to put newly converted people or spiritually immature people in positions of authority in the church. Why? Because of arrogance. The seduction of pride. Eat this fruit and you will be like God. Ruined the human race. And it can ruin families and it can ruin the unity and the harmony of a church. And it can ruin our relationship with each other and with God. So Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Someone said that swallowing our pride will not make us fat. On the contrary, humility makes us more attractive in relationships, doesn't it? So what do we do? What do we need to do? Well, in church lingo, yes, we need to crucify our flesh on a daily basis to admit that there is in us pride, even if we don't see it, and pray to be clothed with humility of Christ. And how did Jesus express his humility? Paul tells the Philippians, that even though he was God, Jesus did not seek equality with God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Learn from what Jesus did. Even though he was God, he did not consider that right something that he wanted to grasp. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the cross. How do we stand united in harmony with one another? By practicing 
humility in all our relationships. May the Lord help us to do that. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.